As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Click for Murder, the companion podcast to CBS Reality's new television series. Now, throughout this series, we're revealing some of the most disturbing crimes of recent history, where the internet has been used as a tool to trick torture and to kill innocent victims lured into a virtual world where nothing is quite what it seems. On today's episode, we look at the case of 15-year-old schoolboy Sofian Belomawadin, who was stabbed to death by a vicious mob in the middle of the London rush hour. It was a crime that shocked the nation and led to the largest murder prosecution for joint enterprise in the history of the Metropolitan Police. But how did a petty school rivalry turn into a bloodbath in just 24 hours? Joining me to discuss this extraordinary case are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at BCU, Birmingham City University. Welcome, Liz. Hi. And also joining me again is clinical forensic psychologist Mike Berry. Hi. Well, let's start by getting some background to this case. Safian came from a very loving family. He was a devout Muslim who observed Ramadan, played football, enjoyed school, and generally he was a happy and content young lad. There doesn't appear to be any warning signs of gang activity or significant antisocial behaviour. That seems to be a fair assessment, Liz. It does seem to be, doesn't it? Whenever we see cases like this, when there's been a big confrontation between two groups of, of young people, we often look to the gang narrative, don't we, to look for answers. But these weren't kids who were living on the margins of society on a, a sink estate with multiple deprivation. These appeared to be children from nice backgrounds with supportive families. And so, so this is quite bizarre. Sophie in school wasn't particularly troubled or performing poorly. Or, you know, ambitious young children and driven teachers looking to inspire and unlock the potential of this generation and then something went significantly wrong. Yeah, there was a confrontation between these these two schools, wasn't there? And this is something that, that we find in, in children from most backgrounds. There is a bit of a school rivalry if you have two or more schools in a local area. Children's sense of belonging tends to be with the school that they're attending. And and there are confrontations, but they very rarely end up in in somebody being killed. Specifically, there was a feud between the kids, students at Sophian School, that's the Henry Compton School for Boys in West London, and a nearby school, uh, that's St Charles College. And so there was a rather typical rivalry and it appeared to be a fight 
over a girl. And uh, this continued with some flashpoint on the 24th of March in 2010, when there appeared to be a clash between the rival pupils at a nearby McDonald's. Some chips were thrown and a friend of Sofian threw a punch at one of the St. Charles kids. And, I mean, this is as innocuous as you can get, some chips thrown and a punch. Well, it happens every day of the week in the schoolyard. Was this a loss of face? Was this too hard to bear for the, the St. Charles students? I think what we start off with is a case of saving face, getting revenge, one lot of kids against another set of kids, and they want to get their revenge. It unfortunately explodes. How significant was this so-called loss of face, this humiliation or slur? It can be part of an ongoing dispute or it can be be something isolated. But I think the feeling here was that, that this wasn't over. Well, following the altercation at McDonald's, the St Charles gang began to plot their revenge. Messages started to fly back and forth over Facebook and BlackBerry Messenger. Now, it's worth pausing at this moment just to bring back into contact what exactly the BlackBerry was in 2010. I think we might all remember it was the phone of choice for businessmen, criminals and indeed teenagers. It, uh, I'm sure you remember Mike and Liz, it was easy to use. The messages were highly encrypted and very difficult to intercept. And it allowed users, and crucially for this particular crime, to create closed groups so they could chat amongst themselves. Significantly, as Sheldon Thomas points out, the BlackBerry had a desirable image for some youngsters. We need to understand that at that time period, the BlackBerry was very much an, an image for the gangster, an image for the street person, an image for the urban collective, the, an image for the one that's looking for the surrogate family. Why? Because it means that he or she can set up a group chat, that his friends may not need to be involved in it, and it's a way of continuing to promote that negative lifestyle or that negative behaviour without another group knowing who you're talking about. Now, I really think Sheldon's got a real kind of connection to this world Mm. and to this particular background to this crime. What was exactly being said on these messages? Well, there were various threats being being traded back and forth. Um, But I think it's it's not so much the the content of of what's said. It's what's actually going on in terms of the the bigger picture of this messaging. And what we've got here is, is a lack of kind of adult and mature people who could potentially put the brakes on it. So this is, is something that these teenagers are engaging in on their own and, and nobody is stepping in to say, hang on a minute, this is getting out of hand. But isn't it also hugely significant because it's in the digital ether, it's a lot easier to be more aggressive and to display that kind of bravado online in the way that you would never do face-to-face. Yeah, there's, there's that old old concept that, that was developed over 10 years ago now called toxic online disinhibition. This idea that, that when we don't have those, those physical cues, we can't see the person in front of us. We're more likely to be aggressive or mean or say things that we'd never say to somebody's face. Interestingly, many of the kids sending these messages which is fueling up this terribly toxic row, they were good kids with no criminal past or problems at school. Why were they doing it? I mean, do you find that surprising, Mike? But they were impulsive. Kids of that age are going to be impulsive. They're going to react to things very quickly. They're not going to sit and contemplate what happens if we do this and this. It's more a case of who can get in first, who can be the most macho, 
And it's this impulsivity that was driven by the use of the internet. That's a really good point. But I mean, what was the key thing here? Were we looking at these kids? Were they inspired by gangster images on social media and other media? They're trying to present a particular image. If you look at the age of these young people, they're, they're at a point in their lives where they're, they're trying to establish their identities. I am this particular type of person. I'm a, a tough kind of person who's, who, who doesn't get messed with by others. So so I think it's, it's this idea of trying to, to present present the self that they want to be seen as but also to be to be part of a group to have a sense of belonging and and to be the one who says hang on a minute guys this is getting a bit out of hand is not going to go down well is social media making them overly hyped and frenzied Yes, without any doubt, you're getting instant messages back. So you put out a message, oh, we ought to get them, uh, we ought to do them over, and you're getting messages back to say, yeah, let's do, let's do that. You're getting that instant feedback that what you're saying is right. And all the time, it's just jacking up the arousal level. I mean, it's instant gratification, isn't it? Whatever your motivation is, it's, you're being fed this and yeah. you're into a fury, and, and this is being, uh, being added to and multiplied, and eventually it becomes, you know into a frenzied murder. And there's, there's this idea of kind of data permanence. So, so you've got your BlackBerry phone and you can look back at the messages that have been exchanged between you and your group of friends. You, you kind of can ruminate over it. And it's, it, it's always there. They're not going to be turning their Blackberries off, are they? So the opportunity for this to dissipate and to fizzle out it is not as significant as it would have been before. So there's no safety valves. There's no kind of, kind of communicative safety valves. There's no adult, there's no young kid who's saying this is getting out of hand. It just is going towards this volcanic eruption. But it's also incredibly exciting. And this is what we've got to remember. This is excitement in a world that, isn't that exciting for kids? School's boring. And here we've got something exciting that we can add to and we can increase. I think people forget how exciting violence can be. So what exactly is being said? Well, some of the language that they were using, talking about getting tooled up and, and, and obtaining weapons, but are they actually planning on using them? Well, while most of those sending the disturbing messages on the evening of the 24th of March in 2010 had no criminal past, one St. Charles pupil was actually known to the police. 17-year-old Samson Odigbune had a criminal record and had once been placed on bail for brandishing a samurai sword on a bus. You know, brandishing a weapon on a bus is quite a threatening thing. It's incredibly. You know, but, but is it inevitably going to lead to a murder? No, most of the time when people are waving those swords, they are acting in a macho way or they're trying to frighten people or keep them from a distance. You don't normally use that weapon to kill somebody. It's not a very good weapon to kill with. Liz, in terms of criminality and his relevance and significance in the St Charles gang, where do you think he stands? It's been argued that this guy was the, the ringleader of the St Charles gang. So, so if he's somebody who has brandished a, a weapon in public before, he's, he's somebody who, who has kind of stepped over a line that perhaps other people haven't. Do you think he's of a, a certain social standing within the group because he has transgressed, because he had a criminal record, and that elevated his standing in the gang? I think that's, that's very true, and it would be for, for this particular group of young 
young people who appear to all be quite law-abiding good kids often you look up to the kid who's who's a bit bad you know who who does go and break the rules and mike did that encourage people to follow him to take his lead be it in reality and also on, uh, online yes the problem with online is that there's no control so you've got somebody who's setting the the, the pace they know where they're going then people will follow them because they're actually channeling the feelings that the other schoolboys have into yeah. something that they can actually target on. Another key and fascinating agitator was Victoria Oseteku. And this 18-year-old had adopted a social media alter ego with the name of Missy Mafia, which it kind of speaks volumes. It, it does, doesn't it? Mm. This is, is somebody who is perhaps modelling herself on on some of the, the, the R&B artists who, who make out that they're a bit bad, they're a bit edgy. If you, you think about women's violence, women don't tend to be physically violent. Um, it, that tends to be men. It, it tends to be a kind of very male-dominated type of crime. So to have a, a woman kind of stoking the fire to this degree is quite interesting. This woman is, is unusual in that she, I think she's both a bully and a victim of bullying. If you look at her past, she's got a very fractured past, to say nicely about her. She's got a fractured past, she's been subject to bullying. What we find is that victims of bullying often become bullies themselves. Well, she certainly had a track record and was described as a bully uh, by those who knew her. I mean... What was the dynamic? Was she working overly hard to try and be accepted by the boys, even though she was one of the oldest in the group? It's somebody wanting to assert a bit of power and authority. And, and if, like you say, she's had in the, in the past experiences of being victimised herself, then, then she's, she's aware of, of the, the dynamics of, of that situation and how powerful the, the aggressor can be. Her messages became more extreme and she encouraged people to come tooled up. Why was she taking the lead? Because it, it made her feel like she had some status within the group. It made her feel like she, she had a bit of power there. Mike, nobody said stop. Nobody within the group said, mm, this is getting out of hand. Oh, they can't do. If you were in a gang of kids and somebody's saying, oh, we're going to have a rumble, we're going to have some trouble, you can hardly say, oh, excuse me, chaps, can we stop and think about this? You'd be laughed out of the playground. You wouldn't have a cat and house chance of influencing. People are driven. They've got a, they've got a challenge. They're driven by that challenge. Somebody in that group saying, hang on, guys, let's stop and think, would have been laughed out of it. On the 25th of March 2010, the frenzied hype, which had flashed across social media, would come to the fore and result in 15-year-old Sophie and Belmawadden being brutally murdered by a gang from a rival school. Yet tragically, that day could have had a completely different outcome. At lunchtime, Sofian rang his mom to say he didn't feel well and asked if he could come home early. However, she persuaded him to stay at school until the end of the day. It seems to me there that he was looking for an out, that he had a sense that all might not be well later on that day and he was looking for an escape valve. It's difficult to, to look back and, and think what was actually going on in his mind at the time. But yeah, you could argue that actually he didn't want to be part of this. And, and no way could he stand up and say, well, I'm not coming, guys, because I don't think this is a good idea. He needed a more legitimate excuse to be able to get out of it. And while Sofian was ringing his mother, Victoria Oseteku went to the local Argos shop in Shepherd's Bush to buy a £3.99 set of knives. Now, uh, is it fair to say that there was nothing else on her mind other than 
the execution of violence. I think by going out and buying those knives, she wasn't going to cookery class, she was going out to get tooled up, which is what she asked people to do on the internet. So her intentions are very clear here that she is going with weapons to the fight. But that doesn't this... mean that she's actually, in reality, going to use them. A lot of waving of knives, a lot of macho prancing about is more likely to happen. Do you think that... Uh... Buying the knives was an act of bravado and she never really thought they would ever be used. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I think I think it, it could be that this was just simply to... It was a prop for the performance rather than something that was going to be used to actually harm someone. And the role she was playing was this Missy Mafia. Yeah, she she has this this kind of alter ego that, that she's attached to herself and she wants to try and live up to this. By 3.15, there was a fevered expectation of violence. The St. Charles gang exited their school ready to face the Henry Compton crew. But they weren't there. In fact, Sophie and his mates from Henry Compton had met in Victoria in order to get together and prepare to face their rivals. Well, news spread of their location and the St. Charles gang then headed to Victoria. Now, for those listening that don't know, Victoria is in the centre of London and there's one important thing to note, as journalist John Clements points out, and that is it's CCTV Central. You couldn't pick a worse place in Britain, perhaps the world, to try and commit an act of violence in public. There are more CCTV cameras at Victoria Railway Station than perhaps anywhere else on Earth. It's up the road from Buckingham Palace, it's a main transit hub, for the whole of south-west London. There's an underground station, Parliament's down the road. It is a security centre for the UK. Bearing in mind that there is CCTV everywhere, were these kids naive, stupid, or perhaps they... Do they ever actually believe that violence would actually occur? Well, two things. One, I don't think they saw the consequences of their actions. I don't think they thought somebody was going to end up being killed. Secondly... They're invincible. At that age, kids are invincible. They don't give a monkeys about CCTV. In fact, they're more likely to wave at the cameras to be seen on the cameras. They wouldn't have seen the CCTV as an inhibitor of their behaviour. The St Charles crew then arrive at Victoria via two buses at 5pm. There's about 40 of them and they are carrying an array of weaponry, including a samurai sword wielded by Samson Odigbune. Now, is there a sense of one-upmanship in the St. Charles crew, Liz? You bring a knife and I'll bring a sword. Yeah, I think there is. And, and I think it is. It's performative. It's symbolic. It's 
it's announcing something about their their status and their authority by the number or the size of weapons that they've got. Whether they've got an intention to use them, we don't know. But we often see this when there's been some online hostility, some online antagonism. People do often set out and arm themselves in preparation for that conflict going offline. Sophie and his pals numbered about 20, but realising they were outmanned and outarmed, they fled the scene. While most of the Henry Compton group escaped, Sophian became isolated and was spotted by the St Charles crew. He tried to escape, but tripped down some stairs at a tube station and was surrounded by a mob. He didn't have a chance. The attack lasted around 12 seconds. But in that time, Sophian was stabbed nine times and was later confirmed dead in hospital. Canon Anthony Bowell was at the scene and offered comfort to the dying Sophian. I was uh, holding uh, his hands, sometimes his, uh, his shoulder, but his, uh, his eyes had glazed over. He wasn't really uh, connected. That's what I was anxious to try and sort of get some connection. But uh, I think he, had, he was unconscious by that point. Well, by now, the St. Charles gang had become frenzied. They appeared to be like a pack of wolves. And if it was just one or two of them, I don't think that this would have happened. I think that the the sheer number of these young people that were there all reinforcing each other in that moment contributed towards this. I mean, I've been the victim of a kind of frenzied pack attack by football hooligans. And, you know, it's hard to know what's going on there. But, you know, the question I have to ask is, did the students really, did they lose all sense of reality? In many ways, they did. They're taken up by the passion of the fight. And that concentrates their energy on that. And they're not thinking moralistically. They're not thinking about what's happening to other people. They're only interested in winning the fight. Now, that's the kind of skills that we teach people to go on a football pitch or a rugby pitch to be passionate and to be solo. And that's what they did. They were just passionate and solo in their intentions. I mean, Unfortunately, it ended up in the death. Of and, uh, and to be with Sophie's family here, I mean, he died a terrible death. I mean, Absolutely. just a, a terrible pain there. But he literally a frenzied mob. And there was he by himself at the bottom of the stairs and unarmed. He didn't stand a chance, did he, against this number of people who were that intent on on following through. But for those who perpetrated this crime, it was really easy for the police to catch them and arrest them. Yes, they were all on CCTV. And the fact that they were so easy to identify was their biggest mistake. But they didn't intend to, to kill anybody. It's quite clear that they didn't intend to kill and therefore they weren't using anything to avoid detection. I, I think that's probably, I think it's wrong that they didn't atten- intend to kill. I think they weren't aware of the consequence, inevitable consequences of their action and never drifted into it. But you simply cannot come mob-handed with knives and samurai swords and not think that that motivation was somewhere in the ether, Liz. Yeah, I, I mean, if we, we look at, at what these individuals were, were charged with, several of them were charged and convicted of, of murder. So that there is the assumption that they've they've gone along with the intention to to harm or to kill, and and that intention can be formed in seconds. It doesn't have to take hours or, or days to come about. And many of them left as they came to the scene on the bus. It is incredible, isn't it? The way that they kind of blend back into normality and and switch back into their their daily routine. And I think 
many of them perhaps wouldn't have been aware that Sofian had had been killed. Those on the the margins of this Mm. conflict will have just fizzled away like they would have done previously. And one of the most extraordinary figures in this particular crime as a young woman, Victoria Oseteka, well, she wasn't arrested at the scene and she brazenly goes to school the next day in the knowledge that Sofian was murdered and she brags about what happened. What's going on there? That's quite extraordinary. Well, this is somebody for whom violence has become quite important in terms of status and in, in terms of a sense of her identity. This this alter ego that she's got of Missy Mafia. She wants to live up to that. But what's really concerning, she doesn't seem to show any empathy. She knows that this young lad's lost his life and she just doesn't seem to care about that. What I, I find fascinating is that she was such a driving force, even though she didn't actually stab him or anything else. She was one of the driving forces behind the killing. Why did they not match the weapons with the potential consequences? Well, it, it was almost like the perfect storm, wasn't it? You've got all of this energy, this antagonism building up on Blackberry Messenger. Um, you've got a situation where, where both groups have actually showed up to the confrontation and there's almost the expectation that, that something physical is going to happen. But I don't think they were going to kill. I think they were going to have a fight, try and win, uh, get one over the other side, either get their revenge or or maintain their their position. I don't think they were out to kill. And yet, that's exactly what happened. How do you explain that? I think quite clearly they were psyching each other up, the whole groups. They were building up the tension... But I don't think they understood the consequences of what they were doing. The knives were there for show. They were propped to make them look macho. They had no intention to kill. And I think if they look back on it, they would still say the same. They did not intend to kill. They don't understand sometimes the consequences of their behaviour. They don't understand group dynamics and the way that people become disinhibited by the group phenomena. We know this as psychologists. It changes people's decision-making. They're much more risky behaviour. I still don't think they planned to kill because I don't think they had the consequences in mind. The police eventually caught up with Victoria Osateku and she, alongside 19 other defendants, were charged with murder under a legal principle called joint enterprise, Mike. Right, the principle of joint enterprise is very simple. If you are in a gang and one member of your gang kills somebody, the whole gang is held responsible, even though you may not have done anything to inflict the injury on the, on the dead person, you are held being joint responsible for the actions. And it, it doesn't require a member of the group to, to intend to kill or cause serious harm. It only requires them to, to foresee that another member of the group might kill or might, might yeah. inflict serious harm. So it, it is quite, quite a contentious law, isn't it? it but if you bring to... a samurai sword to an event where there's student warfare about to take place, you know, it's not entirely surprising that uh, joint enterprise was Mm, brought in. I completely agree in terms of the individual who comes along with the samurai sword, but a lot of people who criticise this law think that the effect it has on the burden of proof is really problematic because it allows those who are quite remote from the kind of hub of the crime to be sort of swept up in the prosecution in the kind of sense that they're all in it together equally. It was the biggest joint enterprise prosecution ever in the courts in England and Wales and there were four trials lasting over 21 months. In the end, the judge handed down three murder convictions and five for manslaughter. Others were convicted on lesser charges. In total, 17 went to prison. Well, what's clear is that many of those convicted 
simply were good kids. They were star pupils, did charity work. You know, how did it come to this, Liz? They've got caught up in the frenzy. They've probably been involved in a kind of confrontation before where nobody's come to any harm. And it's this sense of belonging that they have to the group overriding everything else. And the fact that this has been happening in this kind of closed little online community has meant that it's been been cooking away. Interestingly, Samson Odigbune, who was convicted of murder but didn't actually land a blow on Safin and was nowhere near the scene of the crime when Safin was murdered, he was convicted uh, and, of course, effectively for bringing a samurai sword to the area. Yes, because clearly people would think that his intention was to use it. And Victoria Osateka was convicted of manslaughter despite trying to convince the jury that she was also an innocent party. Why did she try to convince the court and plead her innocence when the evidence was quite overwhelming? I suppose she's got this online persona, this Missy Mafia, that's all important to her. And, and then this, this tragic event happens and this is going to have real consequences for her. So it's a, it's a self-protection. What kind of school children, what kind of murderers were those convicted? Well, I think when we look at this case, we've got to consider what type of social media killers they were. And that involves looking at what they were doing with social media, how they were using it. And essentially, I'd describe them as antagonists. So what's going on here is that these kids are using social media to engage in hostile exchanges with each other. And that is then going to culminate in real life embodied violence. So they're egging each other on. They're creating pressure. They're creating expectations. And as such, that line between thinking and doing and that line between talking and acting is much more easily crossed. Mike, social media was the accelerant in this dispute. Without doubt it did. If it hadn't been for that, then I think the energy might have dissipated or taken longer to build up to that point. But the fact that you've got the internet, you've got social media, it speeds everything up incredibly fast. It's easy to look back and and try and blame one particular factor and looking at how they use BlackBerry Messenger, it was obviously central to this particular conflict. But everybody that was there made the decision to be there, whether or not they thought that this was going to end up in, in somebody being seriously harmed. And I think it's that inability to think through the consequences that, that, that is really at the centre of this. Painting a picture of the legacy of this crime, because I remember I was reading the news in ITN in London at the time and was reporting on, upon this. I remember being shocked and staggered, as was the newsroom, simply by the events, a streaming mob of students clashing into another streaming mod, mob in the centre of London, you know, wielding knives and resulting in a terrible death. I mean, it was staggering and mm. shocking and even still today it is. And thankfully, it's quite rare. It is. It's almost like something you'd see in a video game, isn't it? It really does seem kind of otherworldly. And thankfully, we, we haven't seen anything of this magnitude in recent years. Well, sadly, in the case of Sophie and Belmawad, social media would lead to him losing his life. And his family continued to live with that immense pain. Here's his sister, Sumaya. Still to this day, it hasn't hit me that he's gone. I know I can feel the pain and I feel that he's gone, but... Like I always think that he just jumped on the train and he's on his way to the train that's never ending. One day it's going to end and it's going to come back. I suppose the real shock to me and surprise is that we don't see more incidents, more cases of kind of mass hysteria fueled by social media resulting in deaths like Sophian's. Thankfully, since this this happened, I think that 
that perhaps young people are a little bit more savvy in terms of, of social media, in terms of stepping away from, from particular things. But I think this BlackBerry Messenger, we, we managed to really problematise it, didn't we? Because it became associated with the 2011 riots, which only the, the year after. So I think we do tend to look back on this as a particular flashpoint. Mike, does it surprise you that there aren't more cases of events like this? I suspect we will see more, but I hope we don't. I mean, it's a tragic case and hopefully it won't get repeated, but I suspect it will. Well, thank you to my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and consultant forensic psychologist Mike Berry. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of Click for Murder, Sophie and Bella Moadden on CBS Reality. From me, Donald McIntyre, for now, goodbye. Goodbye.